Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter number 2. Luke chapter number 2. You know me, I just can't get enough of these Christmas sermons. Amen? And uh, no, I, I don't know that I've ever known a preacher that enjoys preaching holiday sermons, and that's not what we're doing tonight. But, uh, I, you know, I, I find it interesting. There are certain portions of Scripture that we just very often do not visit. Um, and certainly it's true that, that most of the time we're not going to preach out of Luke chapter 2 unless it's around the Christmas season. But also find, tucked in the end of Luke chapter number 2, an episode from the life of, of the Lord that very often is neglected. We don't speak of it very often. And, and I always, I don't know about you, but this time of year of New Year's and transition uh, always brings this passage to my attention. I think about it once again. I'd probably be helped if I'd think about it more often than I do. But uh, certainly uh, during this time of the year, uh, it is brought to my attention. And that is a portion of Scripture. It is the only portion of Scripture that deals in narrative fashion with the childhood years of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's interesting when you think about the absence of a narrative of the life of uh, the Lord Jesus during these formative years. But in another way, it's it's not interesting. What I mean by that is is it's startling, it's, it's unusual, but in another way it's not because the whole reason He came uh, was to seek and to save that which was lost. Amen? Uh, the Bible, though it is certainly a biography of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is focused on the whole scope of His ministry throughout human history regarding God's plan of redemption. And so, uh, mere sort of, uh, you know, profane curiosity, the Bible's not here to indulge. But then when we consider the fact that nothing is said about this time in the Lord Jesus' life, but then we have an anomaly, an exception to that, a moment whenever the Holy Ghost pulls the veil back and shows us something about the adolescent uh, years of, of the Savior, then that gives an extra emphasis to that passage. In other words, uh, God obviously didn't see fit that we need to know everything about His childhood. But God also obviously saw fit that we did need to know this about His childhood. And so that's a fascinating thought to me. And I think it sort of draws our attention to this portion of Scripture uh, in a, a unique way. Luke chapter number 2. I'd like to begin reading at verse number 42. Luke chapter 2, verse number 42. The Word of God says, And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. When they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. When they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. It came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. He said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? They understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in your house, Lord. And I pray that you would uh, do the work that is most needful in our hearts. 
We lack the ability to do it, Lord. We certainly can't help ourselves and we've come to you tonight for help, Lord. We need the Word of God to, uh, with laser precision, be applied to our heart and minds and, and I'll readily admit this preacher lacks the ability to do it, so I'm trusting in the Holy Ghost to take uh, your Word, His Word, His sword and use it effectively in the hearts and minds of those that are hearing tonight. Lord, I pray uh, that you'd be with those that are sick and ailing, that you'd touch them and raise them up, be with those that are traveling and cannot be here. Lord, we certainly want you to bless them wherever they're at and, and, and work in their lives. But we have drawn to this moment in the present because we believe you desire to do something here in this place. So help us to uh, push out all of the distractions and to get our heart and mind set upon you and your word tonight. And help us, Lord, to be open to the truth of it and to permit you to do a work which would please you and would grow us in the word of Christ. Lord, we love you and we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. As we said, this is a fascinating passage of Scripture. It's unique in many ways. Uh, and one has to ask themselves, what are some of the main truths that can be drawn from this? I would say this, that when we read this passage, this is a passage that is as much about Mary and Joseph as it really is about the Lord Jesus. There are some interesting things that are disclosed to us about the Lord Jesus, His life, or some things that we learn. We learn uh, that uh, in the midst of His incarnation, it did not preclude or exclude His awareness of His deity and divinity, certainly not at this age. And if you want to know my opinion, I think He always knew who He was. I don't think He ever did not know who He was. Uh, we could talk about the sort of imprimatur of divine wisdom upon Him, even at a young age, such that when he was seated amongst the uh, scribes and Pharisees, the lawyers, and the word that Luke uses is the word doctors here uh, in uh, the temple, that they were amazed and wondered at his wisdom and the things that he taught and the things that he said. But really, when we look at this passage, I think we learn more about an episode in the life of Mary and Joseph. And I think that this sort of narrative scene from the childhood of the Lord Jesus serves as a vehicle to drive home an important truth about something that can easily happen in your life and in my life. I'm glad that all of my parenting is not, uh, how do I say this, recorded to be thrown back up at me one day. Amen. And some of y'all, mom and dad, better be glad of that too. Amen. There's some things if I could prove them. But uh, yeah, I'm glad there's not scrutinizing eyes on every every decision I make. I'm glad there's room for mistakes and things like that. I, I'm glad that, uh, you know, one of these days, half the things I've, I've uh, done wrong in parenting, my kids won't remember, and the other half they won't be aware of. And uh, I, I guess I'm saying I'm glad that there are not eyes of scrutiny on every single choice, because if we were to be honest, I don't care how good of a parent you feel like you are, we all make mistakes in raising our children. We all have things that we look back on and say, man, what was I thinking, or why wasn't I thinking? I wish I had done something different. But now let's sympathize for just a minute with Mary and Joseph. We don't know a thing about how they raised Jesus except this one passage. And how many of you have heard this before? That you can do the right thing a million times, nobody will notice, but the one time you mess up, everybody catches it. We don't know anything about all the good days, but God gives us a glimpse into probably what was one of the worst days parenting the Son of God that Mary and Joseph ever experienced. And we are shown how easy it is, even for people that love the Lord, even for people that are invested in His work, even for people that are committed to His will, to find themselves making fundamental mistakes in their walk with the Lord. 
We could say it this way. We don't know a lot about their parenting, but the one episode we do find, guess what happened? They lost it. They misplaced it. They, 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 they somehow lost track of where he was. Let me say to you tonight, and I want to be abundantly clear, I don't want to be misunderstood with this. When I speak tonight of misplacing the Lord, I'm not talking about losing our salvation because the Bible teaches we can't lose our salvation. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, somehow uh, creating for ourselves a second-class relationship with God because our relationship with God is positionally predicated on the finished work of Christ on Calvary. But I am saying this, that in our relationship with the Lord, there are times that though He never loses track of us, sometimes we do lose track of Him. He never leaves us, but there are times that we allow space to grow in our walk with the Lord. I would say this, that when we come to this passage of Scripture, we find an example of how easy it is to misplace the Master. And I would say in your life and mine tonight, If we're not careful, we'll find ourselves in the exact same situation that Mary and Joseph were in. And you might say, well, preacher, I don't see that their situation is anything similar to ours. Well, don't you look carefully at it and think with me for a moment about the great trust that God placed in Mary and Joseph. For instance, when I consider their situation here, I notice, number one, that they were entrusted with a great revelation. They knew who Jesus was. They're walking through a world that is uh, starkly unaware of who is walking amongst them. There are a handful of, of illuminated souls that are aware of who He is. People like Simeon, people like Anna, and they know who they're dealing with. People like the Magi, they know who He is. People like the shepherds, they know who He is. People like Elizabeth and Zechariah, they knew who He was. But for the vast majority of people, the child Jesus could have walked up and down the street and no one would have took notice, no one would have known who He was. But then here you have Mary and Joseph, and though no one else is aware, but they know just exactly who He is and how amazing He is. Boy, that sort of feels like being a child of God in these days we're living in, don't it? That we can walk up down the street, you can talk about Bible Christianity and people will nod and they'll smile and people will sometimes try to be respectful, but you can tell by the way they react, they don't know who He is. That They know the Bible answer. If you were to say, who is He? They'd say, well, He's the Son of God but they don't really know who He is. They don't really know what that means. It's not really informed or or transformed their life. And, And being a child of God and knowing the Lord personally through Jesus Christ, you almost feel like you're part of this unique group of people that gets it, that really understands, hey, He is who He says He is. He's as wonderful as He says He is. He's done all the things that He's told us that He's done. We have been entrusted with a great revelation of the personhood of Jesus Christ. That's not something we should take lightly. Man, do you remember when you didn't know? Do you remember how you lived when you didn't know who He was? Do you remember what you did when you didn't know who He was? But now here you stand, justified by grace, cleansed by the blood of Christ, and now you understand who Jesus really is. You have been initiated into the full awareness of that reality. He is not just a prophet, not just a preacher, not just a teacher, not just some religious guru, but He is God in the flesh. He is the Son of God and God the Son. And He is your Savior if you've accepted Him as your Savior. And He is your God and your Lord and your Master. What a glorious truth that is. Man, we've been entrusted with this great revelation and now we're interacting with a world that doesn't know who He is. 
And the most transformative truth that they could ever learn is to learn that truth that we know, to know who He really is. They were entrusted with a great revelation. But then I thought about this. They were also entrusted with a great resource. Could you imagine what it must have been like? And I'm sure there was a lot of mundanity. I'm sure there was a lot of of things that we would imagine would be spectacular that really weren't. A lot of things that might have been similar in their home to your home or to my home. But you've got to think to yourself that there were times when they sat at the table, and if Mary really understood it, and if we read our Bible correctly, she she understood. I don't know how much Joseph was aware. I know that he knew what the angel had told him. But the Bible over and over again reminds us that Mary kept these things in her heart. Man, she believed him. She knew him. She knew who he was. Even from the time that he was a babe, she understood the magnitude of his person and of his character. And could you imagine that there weren't times that she just sat across the breakfast table and thought, I've got God sitting at my table. I mean, I've got God sitting here. The the one that stepped out from behind time and stepped onto the scene of nothing and flung everything into existence. The, the, The Creator God is sitting at my table. Imagine what it was like to have such direct access to God. But Then I'm reminded for you and I tonight that we have no less access to God while we sit here if we know the Lord is our Savior. In fact, I'd say this, we've got more access than Mary had. For Mary, <laughs> Mary could allow the God to come walk into her sewing room, but we get to go and walk into His throne room. What amazing access. What a great resource that we have in knowing what a precious God that He is. And you would imagine the, the confidence that would have bred in their hearts. They, they had to know that as long as they kept Him in their home and protected Him and watched over Him, that they were assured, I mean, listen, this was a divine plan. God was not going to let anything happen to His Son until Calvary. They had to know there would always be food in the pantry. They had to know there would always be protection outside the door in the form of divine favor. They had to know that, hey, listen, they're living with God in the house. They ain't got nothing to worry about. But then I'm reminded how you and I live today. (laughs) And we likewise could say the same thing. We're living with God in the house. What, What do we have to fear? Hey, listen, the Lord has taken up residence in our heart and in our life. What fear need we have that God will not provide for us? David himself said it when he said, I've been young and now I'm old, yet have I never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. We likewise have a great resource just like they did. But then I'm reminded that they were also entrusted with a great responsibility. They were tasked with accompanying and protecting the Son of God. In other words, it was their job Basically, Mary, Joseph, whatever you do, don't lose him. He's God. He can take care of himself. Just don't lose him, all right? And that was their their sole responsibility was to function in that role, to raise him, to nurture him, uh, to be the vehicle through which God would fulfill those needs and provisions in his life. And, And what a great responsibility that must have been. There have been times that I have just been absolutely dumbfounded by the immense responsibility of parenthood. I remember, and actually, Nick, my brother-in-law, said this to me, and, and you know, people will say things to you sometimes in life that stick with you because later they really resonate. And I remember when we were getting ready to have Lawrence, he said, you'll never imagine how weird it is when you go to leave the hospital. That very first time with your very first child, you go to leave the hospital. And there's this moment where you're like, all right, what do we do next? And they're like, well, you go home and raise him. And you're like, well, well, how do I do that? 
well, what do I need? I, I, I can just leave with them. I mean, I can just get in the car and, and we can just drive off and, and we can go and, and we start this thing of parenthood together. And I remember for that moment for me being struck by the magnitude of the responsibility. I'm going to take this tiny little, little soul and, 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 and creature and I'm going to put it in my car and I'm going to strap it in. And I'm going to have to drive the whatever 10, 11 miles from the hospital to my house. And, and all of a sudden before, man, I didn't care. I was out there like the Dukes of Hazard. I was jumping things. And, and now all of a sudden I have this precious cargo in, in, in the vehicle with me. And all of a sudden, man, I'm paranoid. I'm the most defensive driver that's ever happened. I spent 40 minutes just parked in the parking lot scared to move. The magnitude of that responsibility. And you can imagine how heightened that was for Mary and Joseph, for they had the responsibility to maintain this connection and this relationship with Him. Now, I want to be very, very clear with what I'm about to say. I'm glad it's the Lord that holds on to us and not us that holds on to Him. I'm aware of that. I'm glad that there's nothing I can do to sever that relationship. But likewise, God has in some, in, in some terms put the ball in our court regarding the intimacy of our relationship with Him. In fact, this is how James says it, or the Lord says it in the book of James, Draw nigh unto me, and I'll draw nigh unto you, saith the Lord. In other words, though it is true that the the premise of our relationship, the basis of our standing, our firm foundation, is not based upon anything we do, but it's based on the finished work of Christ on Calvary. But likewise, our willingness and the richness of our experience of, of the relationship we have with God is very much dependent upon our willingness to put Him first in our life and our willingness to stay close, to stay clean, and to stay committed to Him. And yet in the midst of all of this, we find that they somehow misplaced it. How does that happen in a person's life? Well, let me ask you this. How does it happen in your life and my life? How could we have all these things and yet still let our walk with God grow cold? How could we have all these things and yet still allow ourselves to walk out of lockstep with Him? I would say the way it happened to them is the same way it happens to us. I want you to notice a few thoughts here tonight that I think serve as a cautionary tale of misplacing the Master in our life. And by the way, there's a little bit of wordplay there. Because when we misplace Him, we misplace Him. You hear what I just said? When we miss place Him. When we don't place Him in the proper place in our life, it's not long and we misplace Him. We've allowed our relationship with Him to slide and we've allowed ourselves to draw away from Him. How does it happen in a person's life? Notice number one, their separation from Him. Verse number 42 and 43 and 44. The Bible says when He, when the Lord Jesus was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey. Let's pause there. How did they wind up separated from him initially? How does that happen in our life? Well, notice first off, their custom with him. Notice the usage of the word custom in verse number 42. Now, the word custom is not a bad word. It's not a dirty word, scripturally speaking. It doesn't evoke any negative ideas. But it, here's what it's saying. It was saying every year at feast time, they'd go up to Jerusalem. And they went up to Jerusalem the same way that they did every single year. Most years, nothing had ever happened. But this year when they go up at the custom of the feast, all of a sudden this event takes place. The word custom denotes the idea of familiarity, and routine. And I would say this, you say, preacher, how could this happen in a person's life? I would say, number one, when our Christianity simply becomes custom. 
when our relationship simply becomes routine. When our faith simply becomes familiarity. And all of a sudden, we no longer value and appreciate the precious thing that we have in our walk with the Lord. I'm not altogether opposed to routine. Routine is a natural part of the rhythm of life. And, and there are certain things that if we can form a habit around them, certain good qualities and good, good characteristics, that often that concept of routine helps us maintain consistency. But I find that in our Christian life, though we should be so faithful that one could call it routine, when we begin to view our relationship with God as nothing more than routine, it's not long before we check out and quit paying attention to what God's doing in our life. You know what the word routine is all about? And we could use the word habit. It's about being able to place yourself in cruise control. That's why you maintain a routine. It's so that you maintain a consistent trajectory in something without having to give a lot of thought to. It's just routine. It's just habit. It's just sort of the way that I live and what I do and I don't really think about it. It's just natural to me. Let me say we have a great tendency to try to do that in our relationship with God too. To try to somehow take the requirement, the sting of discipline out of the experience by relegating it merely to routine. But when we do that, here's what we do. We forfeit all the richness of that experience. Let me give you a little small example. When you read the Word of God, and I hope you read it every day, and if you have a consistent routine, man, I recommend that to you. God bless you. That's wonderful. But when we use that as an opportunity to just open our Bible, check out, drink a cup of coffee, and stare at the page without really considering prayerfully what we're reading, we're not getting a thing out of it. Now that's one example. We could give a thousand others. We could talk about our prayer life. We could talk about witnessing, sharing the gospel with people. We could talk about, uh, you know, uh, our church relationship. But whatever it might be, understand that there is a crucial danger in relegating our relationship with the Lord to custom and nothing more. It needs to be alive. It needs to be vibrant. It needs to be invested and cognizant. In other words, it needs to be something that is not, is not just here, but is here and is here as well. I see their custom with Him. And then I notice the second thing. I see their continuance without Him. There's an interesting comparison, a dynamic that's in play in verse 43. It says, when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. This is an interesting passage of Scripture. There's probably some very illuminating dispensational perspectives a man could have about this. Because according to the record of God's Word, this is the first expression of the will of Christ in the Word of God in His earthly ministry. In other words, this is the first example we have of Him making a decision that is recorded for us. And what is that decision? When his, when his parents desire to move on, he desires to stay behind in Jerusalem. Now, what did they do? Well, the Bible says this, Joseph and his mother knew not of it. Here we have in direct contravention of each other, human will and divine will. What happened in this situation? They chose human will above divine will. Now, let me go ahead. Let me just take a little easy on Joseph and Mary. I, I'm not suggesting that they committed some great, great scarlet sin by losing track of where their child was in that moment. There's not a parent living that hasn't had that happen occasionally. Listen, as long as when you get home and unbuckle them from the car seat, it's not somebody else's child, I call it a win. Amen? If you manage to get yours home at some point within three business days, I think you're still a good parent. 
But I do think it is meaningful that you have this conflict between human will and divine will. And is it not informative to us that when they chose human will above divine will, there was a distance created? And I would say in our life, when we choose our will above His will, and this is how it happens in our life. First off, we grow bored with our Christianity because it's just routine. We didn't grow bored with it because it's boring, because it's not boring. Ask somebody just got born again. It's not boring. But we've grown bored with it because we have allowed ourselves to become distracted from the richness and robustness and, and we no longer are invested in the process of it as far as psychologically and, and emotionally and spiritually. And so it's just grown, it's grown kind of dead. It's grown kind of boring to us. And then we're faced with a choice. God pits His will against our will to try to awaken in us some participation in this experience. And now we choose. What are we going to do? And here's what most of us sadly do. Most of us say, God, here's the direction I'm going. If you want to come along, that's fine. Pretty soon we find out that He's not willing to let us play that game because He loves us too much. And so instead, He allows that, that tension, that conflict between His will and our will to exist. You know why? Because if we got our will, we'd make a mess of things. How many times have you said, how many times have I said when we've been driving down the road and God created all those little wonderful blessings like traffic jams and, 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 and you know, long red lights and, and, and things that cause us to leave late and then all of a sudden we pull up on the scene of a crash. And how often have we thought to ourselves, boy, how wonderful God is if I had had my way and left the house when I wanted to and thought it could have been me laying there on the side of the road. Why then do we not say the same thing about other choices in our life? Likewise, I think it could very easily be asked, what things did God spare Mary and Joseph from? Because He was willing to stress that tension between divine will and human will. We begin to uh, allow a, a decline in our spiritual walk when we just continue on without. You want to come, God? That's great. If you don't, you know the direction I'm headed. And then notice their carelessness with Him. Verse 44, the Bible says, but they supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey. Now make no mistake, had they been aware that Christ was back in Jerusalem, they would have stopped and turned around and went back immediately. In fact, we find that something almost similar to that takes place in our passage. But they got a day's journey away from him. You know why? Because they just presumed and assumed that he was still with them. You know how this happens in our life that we drift so far away from the Lord. One of the ways is making assumptions about the Lord's presence and power in our life. Now again, let me be abundantly clear. I'm glad that just as the, the, when we talk about the, the doctrine relating to salvation, there's two aspects. There's positional and practical. I'm positionally sanctified in the eyes of God. Perfect, pure, clean, spotless, uh, white as snow. But practically speaking, I don't always live that way. One of these days, thank God, we're going to be given a new body and the practical and positional will join together and be one and the same. And in the same respect, I would say this, when we talk about the presence of the Lord, there's two ways in which we could talk about it. We could talk about the explicit presence of God. That's the presence that He promised. He'd never leave us nor forsake us. And thank God that He is always there in our life. There's never a moment we're without Him. But then how could there be passages where the Lord talks about Israel departing from Him? How could there be passages where the Word of God talks about us either drawing nigh or, or, or drawing further away? Here's why. Because there's not only the explicit presence of God, there's the experiential presence of God. 
You say, what's the difference, preacher? The explicit presence of God is He's there no matter what. But the experiential presence of God is our enjoying of fellowship and communion with Him in that experience. In other words, He's always there. But sometimes if we ain't walking with Him, He feels a thousand miles away. Say, but preacher, isn't He still there? Yeah, He's still there. And my salvation is not based upon what I feel and, and, and what I experience emotionally or, 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 or things of that sort. But, but I sure enough like to feel my salvation. His presence is there whether I feel it or not, but I sure want to feel His presence there. And for them, here's what happened. They just, even when the experiential presence was gone, they just assumed that everything was still okay. And in our life, what happens is, even, even when we're not uh, communicating with God, even when we're not uh, interacting with Him, spiritually speaking, through our prayer life, through vibrant study of the Word of God, through, through uh, reaction to the preaching of the Word of God, and we just assume that everything's probably still alright. How many times have we seen this happen? I, I've counseled people through marriages for years and, and seen heartache and heartbreak, and I can't tell you the numbers of times I've seen people in marriages that just assumed everything was okay when that was not the case. And they assumed it until the day that everything blew up. I would say in our Christian walk, there's a great danger in just assuming. And by the way, if we think things are on good standing, why would we be afraid to talk to the Lord and ask Him how things are? I don't know about you, but most of the time when I know I've done something wrong, I don't ask my wife what's wrong. I typically only ask what's wrong when I'm ignorant to whatever I have done wrong. If I know what I've done wrong, I don't ask her because that's just going to make her more angry. Amen? If everything's really okay, won't you talk to him? Won't you ask him? Won't you pray to him and say, Lord, are we okay? Is everything all right? Don't make the assumption. I see their separation from him. Number two, I see their search for him. The Bible says in verse number 44, when they realized this, they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem seeking Him. And it came to pass that after three days, they found Him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. So they did the right thing. When they are aware that He is no longer present with them, they turn around and they begin to look for Him. But I want you to notice what that process looked like. Notice, number one, they resorted to familiar places. They looked in some places where He was not. Why did they look there? Well, I think there's a very rational reason for that. I think that most people would initially look in those places and say, well, maybe he's with cousins, maybe, you know, he is, is with family members somewhere, and that would only be natural for him to be in that place. But I would also say there's a second reason. They looked there because that was the easiest place to look. Can I cast this in a negative light? And there's probably positive things we could say about it. But you know what we have an inclination to do? Whenever our relationship with God is not in the right place, Oftentimes, instead of looking for Him, we look for somebody we think can find Him. I would say this, that whatever noble things we could say about this decision, it was the wrong decision because they didn't find Him there. The goal is to find Him, and when they looked, they did not find Him there. And can I say, you can try to substitute a proxy in your relationship with God, but all that's going to do is delay you getting down to brass tacks about what's wrong in your relationship with Him. Man, I hope my family and kinsfolk and friends know the Lord. But I know this, though they may know the Lord, they can't know the Lord for me. I've got to know Him myself. 
They resorted to familiar places. When that didn't work, they made the right decision. Here's what they did. They returned to former places. Verse 45, when they found Him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem seeking Him. Rule number one to find something that is lost. Go back to the place that you last saw it. And look for it there. And nine times out of ten, that's where you're going to find it. Because after all, it's not that it's really lost. It's simply been forgotten about. I would say in our life, notice number one, where'd they go back to? They went back to the place he was left. The last place they saw him, the last place they talked to him, they said, I need to go back there and investigate and see where things might have gone wrong. Hey, listen, man, Christianity 101, listen carefully. Something goes wrong in your relationship with the Lord, you go back to the scene of the crime. Go back to where you last talked to him and ask yourself, did I go astray here? Go back to that matter, that issue, whatever it was around which things changed in your Christian experience and ask yourself, did I go amiss here? Did I put my will above His will? Did I leave Him behind regarding our fellowship and our communion together? Go back to the last place that you found Him. Chances are you're going to find Him somewhere around there. They go back to Jerusalem. They went back to the place that He was left. But then I like verse 46. It says, and it came to pass that after three days they found Him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. You know where they found him? They found him not only in the place that he was left, but they found him in the place that he loved. They went back to the place that was most precious to him. Do you notice back in in verse number 43, it says that the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. So they said, last place we saw him in, it was in Jerusalem. They went back there and said, let's go check the temple. That was the place that he loved. That was the place he was fascinated with. That's the place he had set his heart upon. But let's go back to the very thing that he loves the most. And I found that one of the ways we can get closest to the Lord is to go back to the things that he loves and make them a priority in our life. Very often what happens when we drift in our walk with the Lord is we have chosen to love things He does not love. We're only setting ourselves up to heartache when we love things that God does not love. He owns our heart. And He'll not permit us to love things that are not precious to Him. But likewise, if we want to grow close to Him, here's what we can do. We can love the things that He loves. Go back to the places where He loves to be, the haunts that He loves to stay in. Go back to the things you say, Preacher, give me some examples. Well, I'd say this. He loves His Word. Go back to His Word. He loves to hear the prayers of His people. Go back to the prayer closet. Hey, He loves the house of God. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go unto the house of the Lord. Go back to the house of God. I would say this, He loves obedience. There's an area of disobedience. Go back to a state of obedience. He likes worship. He likes praise. Go back to praising Him. Go back to worshiping Him. In other words, go back to the place that he loved. I see their search for him. And then the Bible says in verse 47, all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wish ye not that I must be about my father's business? I see they're sobering by him. This is a fascinating interaction in the Word of God. And we certainly can't sound the depths of it in the time that we have before us tonight. But I just noticed three things about this. When they find Him, there are three things that take place. One, I want you to notice their sudden realization. They show up and everybody's sitting around. The temple is abuzz 
about this 12-year-old boy that knows more than what the rabbis do. He's talking about things they can't even fathom. He's connecting things that they didn't even know was connected. And all these grown men, and dare I say, if, 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 if the trope holds true, aged men, long beards, standing around, stroking their beards, listening to the things this 12-year-old boy is saying, and everybody's standing around saying, how amazing this young man is. The Bible says when they walk into that scene, they likewise were amazed at what they saw. I would say this, that when we come back to him, we can anticipate there will be a sudden reminder, realization of how wonderful he is and a wonder at to why we ever left him in the first place. You know, that's how it happens. We just sort of get over it. What happens in our Christianity? We just, it gets routine to us and it gets boring to us and, and we just sort of get over it. But the Lord, He never gets over it. And who He is, He's still today. You know, He's the same God that His goodness broke your heart when you were a lost sinner. He's the same God that His mercy and grace stunned you when you were without God and without Christ and without hope in this world. He's the same God. He has not changed. We have changed. And what we need is a, a, a fresh realization of how wonderful He is. But then verse 48, His mother said unto Him, Son, why hast Thou thus dealt with us? Behold, Thy Father and I have sought Thee sorrowing. Now most people take note of, and I think it's significant, the, the, the slip of the tongue that Mary has here. She calls Joseph Christ's father, and that was not the case. And and they were aware of that, and Christ was aware of that, that He was a stepfather. He had no kinship, no relationship to the Lord Jesus. But what it bespeaks is a carnality in her frame of mind. Now again, let's just be a little gentle with Mary here. She has been a mother that has been startled and shocked and scared to death at the thought that her son has gone missing. But I would say this, that if we are to learn something from her life, we must notice her selfish rebuke of the Lord. She says what most parents would say. What were you thinking? How many times have you said that to your kid? Mine, my oldest one is eight, and I've said it at least two million times. What were you, what were you thinking? What's the matter? What were you, you weren't thinking. That's what happened. And she says this, you scared us to death. Your father and I have been looking for you. In other words, we could maybe say it this way. She lost herself in the hysteria of that moment. And she now tries to deflect the blame on him. She says, we were going, we were leaving, and you stayed behind. You were wrong. I agree with that if we're talking about your kid or my kid. But we're talking about God's kid and God in the flesh. What happened? She lost herself for a moment. And she forgot that at the end of the day, if it's a contest between His will and our will, His will always wins. She has to be reminded of who He is in that moment. And then look at verse 49. Look at His searching reply. He said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my Father's business? Now, I don't believe the Lord is saying, Why are you looking for me? I think He's saying, How are you looking? And I would say that in our life, the fundamental mistake in our uh, walk with God when we have a similar experience is, is not the why, it's the how. They looked at Him as a child to be brought under subjugation to their will. 
And while there is an appropriateness to that, they had lost sight in the midst of all of it of who He truly was. And He reminds them, you're dealing with God here. Don't forget that I have a purpose and a plan. I have a work that I'm carrying out. And you're either going to be a part of that work or you're going to be an obstacle to that work. In our life, we sometimes forget that God's still working on us. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, He's still effectuating His will in our lives. Sometimes we have a tendency to view this thing like, well, I got born again and now I'm, I'm a child of God and everything's good and I'm just waiting until the bus shows up for me to get to go to heaven. While it's certainly true that we are as saved now as we will ever be positionally, it is equally true that God is still working in our lives in a meaningful way. He should be. If we'll let Him, He will. And He's developing us in our life, in our walk with Him. And as such, we have a choice. We're either going to let God do His work in our life or we're going to hinder that work in our life. Oftentimes we lose sight. We have to be reminded, hey, God's still working in us. And we have to permit that to take place. Notice finally, and I'm done tonight, they're securing of Him. What happens? Verse 51. The Bible says, He went down with them, and came to Nazareth, and was subject unto them. But His mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. I'll tell you what I would have been thinking. I guess they're thinking the same thing. We've got a hold of Him now. Don't let go of Him. We, we lost Him once. Don't lose Him again. Now why, if they would have that perspective, would we not have that perspective? We say, I let this happen in my life, this lapse of, of commitment to the Lord, and I need to resolve myself to never let it happen again. Notice three things here. Notice number one, that the Lord returned and remained with them. The Bible says that He went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was subject unto them. You know why? The problem was never His will, it was their will. It was that their will ran in direct contravention of His will. But He had a desire to be where they were. Can I make a simple observation? God wants to be close to you and I. He's not playing hard to get. He's not trying to hide from us. He wants to be close to us. Now, if we make it a matter of our will versus His will, His will is always preeminent. But if we'll put our will under His will, and it's interesting, the dynamic here, He rebukes them. They subject their will to the Father's will. And once they are subject to the Father's will, how is it that you sought me? Wist you not that I must be about my Father's business? I'm obeying the Heavenly Father. When they become subject to the Father's will, He's willing to be subject to their will. Can I tell you this? Sometimes it feels like all God does is work against us in things. But that's wrong. God's working for us in things. We just have to be willing to work for ourselves in those things. What I mean is, we have to be willing to let God help us in our walk. God's not just standing there trying to withstand us at every moment. God desires for us to grow. God desires for us to mature as Christians. But if we say, Lord, I want my will above your will, then He's going to say, if you'll walk contrary to me, I'll walk contrary to you because what I want for you is better than what you want for you. When we'll put our will subject to His will, you know what we'll find? He has every desire to be as close to us as we want Him to be. He returned and remained with them. Notice number two, He deepened and developed them. Verse 51 says, but His mother kept all these sayings in her heart. All of these statements about Mary, all through the gospel records, they sort of lead almost like tributaries to that moment at Calvary 
when she's standing there in full awareness of the magnitude of what's taking place as much as any human could be of what's taking place on the cross of Calvary. And this likewise was one of those moments. She kept this in her heart. She didn't forget from this moment forward who He was. She knew she was aware. And I would say this, that God has a desire to develop us in our Christianity, to deepen our walk with Him. And then notice verse 52, that He increased and enriched them. Now, when I say enriched, I don't mean monetary. But I mean their life and their experience. The Bible says, verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This one moment, like a blip on the radar, this one moment in their, in their raising of Him, parenting of Him, in His adolescent years and the rest of the time were reminded that their relationship, and I'm sure there were still moments of tension because Mary and Joseph were human beings like you and, and like me, but we're reminded that when they had Him in the home, it made the home a more precious place. And I just remind you that in your life, your Christianity, the more of God you've got in your life, the better your life's going to be. The less of God you have in your life, and you understand how colloquial I mean that, I, I understand all the theological implications of the eternal security of the believer, the exhaustive nature of salvation. But let's just talk practical, face to face. We can either have a little bit of God present in our life, or we can have a lot of God present in our life. Those people that are saved and then allow the carnality of the flesh to squeeze out all the influence of God in their life to such a degree that they are stunted and hindered in their walk with Him. It don't have to be that way. I want more of the Lord in my life. And what that means is not Him becoming more in my life, but me making more of Him, me allowing Him to have the right of way in, in our life. I would say this, the more we have of Him, the better life's going to be. So the question we have is this, what place have we given Him? Or have we allowed some distance to grow in our walk with Him? Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I want you to have an opportunity to respond to the Lord this evening. God spoke to your heart. You just go ahead and slip out of your seat. Come find a place down here. You don't have to wait for the first note to be played. Father, I pray that this next few moments would be a time of sincerity and reflection. Lord, that we would place ourselves at your, at your feet, at your throne. And Lord, that we would allow ourselves the work to be done in our life that you desire to do. Help us, Father, to desire a closer walk with thee and to draw nigh unto you. Father, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed.